God of grace, God of mercy, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. God, as we talk today about who we are, remind us always that we do not wash our own garments. You wash us. You have cleansed us by your blood. And we belong to you. And everything we have, we owe to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I've got ten minutes. Jesus wants you to give us all your money. Thanks. All right. That said, we're going uh, to finish this last sermon in this little mini-series, this Family Values mini-series. Uh, and we're going to look at our, our final value, right? We want to be a church. Uh, we want to give ourselves away in mercy, serving, evangelism, and stewardship. Uh, and the way we're going to look at that is, is this. We're going to talk about the good life and what the good life is. And there are two views. And the first view is this. You have a need. And that need can be met by having. Having the right body, having the right look, having the right clothes, having the right job, having the right guy, having the right girl, having the right toys, cars, guns, boats, etc. Your needs are met by having. Your life, the good life, consists in having. That's one view. The second view is that you have a need, a deep need. And that need has been met by the grace of another, by the generosity of another. And he has enabled you to now help him meet the needs of others so that your life no longer consists in having, your life consists in giving. That's the, those are the two views of the good life. And hopefully you see that the second one is the one that I'm going to advocate today, the one that I think that Jesus advocates, and the one that we as a church, following his lead, want to be. We want to spend our lives in giving. Where do we get that? We get it from a lot of different places, I think. But John 12 is where we're going to look today. So John 12, verse 20. This is just after Jesus has entered the city of Jerusalem and everybody has been singing his praises. And John tells us this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we would wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew... Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. When we, when we come to a topic like this, it's very easy to feel guilty and to feel manipulated. And frankly, it is easy to manipulate. But that is not how Jesus calls us to give ourselves away. He points first to himself as the example and then calls us to follow. So I don't want you to leave here today feeling guilty for having money, or feeling guilty for being American, or anything like that. My hope is that we would, at the end of the sermon, want to be a people who find joy in giving ourselves away. Because that's what Jesus offers. He doesn't say, pony up and do your duty, pay your dues. What he offers is joy. And when you give, when we give ourselves away, he promises joy. And we're going to see what that looks like. First, that when Jesus gives himself away, he does so for a rich harvest of glory. It brings him joy to give himself away. When we give ourselves away, it brings us a rich harvest of life, real life, lasting life. And then finally, hopefully, we'll get to apply what that means in the particular area of stewardship, what grace looks like in giving, in giving our money. But first off, let's imagine this scene, okay? Uh, Jesus has just come into Jerusalem, and it's like, it's, it's bigger than the Super Bowl, Okay, this is, this is Passover week. It's the biggest week on the calendar. It's, it's the party. It's the festival to end all festivals. Every hotel room is full. There are tents set up in every empty space all over the city. People are everywhere. Animals are everywhere. The streets are crowded. There's excitement in the air. And there's, there's this guy, Jesus, that everybody's been talking about. Just in the previous chapter, he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, and it caused lots of people to believe, and it caused the Pharisees to say, if he keeps this up, we're going to lose our country and our position. We have to kill him. So Jesus actually goes into hiding until he takes this donkey like a victorious king and rides into his city. And the Pharisees, their mouths are stopped, right? They look at each other in verse 19, and they say, You're gaining nothing. See, the whole world has gone after him. That's the scene. And as if on cue, when the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after him, these Gentiles appear, these Greeks. Right? They they would have come, they came to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. So that means they've already turned their back on their pagan deities, right? They've come and they've heard about the one true God. And they've heard about Jesus. And they're curious and they want to meet him. And so they approach Philip, who probably spoke some Greek because of where he was from. And Philip and Andrew, not sure how, not sure how Jesus is going to answer this request, they approach Jesus. 
And Jesus says, bring him on. Actually, that's not what Jesus says. <laughs> Made you look. Jesus, Jesus is really good about being indirect. But it's interesting that when he gives an indirect answer, it really cuts to the heart of the matter. When Jesus answers, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? Okay, well, to, to glorify something is to show that it's beautiful, uh, to, to reveal God's glory, to lift it up. And so what this means for Jesus is this, this is talking about his return to where he's come from, his return to the Father, his reclaiming that kingly glory that belongs to him, that's rightfully his. That is his glorification. But there's something here unexpected. Right? If you, if you would, imagine Jesus' life as a line. Okay? And so, here's heaven, here's where he's returning, and here's heaven, here's where he's come from. And what he did, he began a steep descent. Right? When he took on flesh and was born as a baby, became a man, right? The downward descent began. And he was born into humble circumstances. And yet that downward descent is about to come to an end, right? It's about, his life is about to reach its lowest point, right? When Jesus hears about these Greeks, he knows this is a sign to him that the moment has arrived for him to take the cross. The moment has arrived for him to be lifted up, to give himself. So here's the unexpected thing about Jesus' glorification. In order for him to go back up, he has to face the cross. Where shame ends, this excruciating, painful, scandalous death, where shame ends, glory begins. And that's the unexpected part. He's got a crowd around him and they would have heard him say, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And they would have said, great. We were excited. We're glad you're going to take the throne. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And very quickly, he adds, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Jesus wants them and he wants us to know that glory comes after or comes rather through the cross. There is no crown without the cross. Jesus must give of himself. Right? The principle, the grain principle is a really simple one. In order for a seed to bear fruit, it has to die. Right? It has to, to go into the ground. I'm looking at Gary for verification. This is true. Okay. Um, it ceases to be a seed. Right? It falls into the ground and dies, and it bears fruit. If it doesn't do that, just remains alone. It serves no purpose. And what Jesus is saying is for his earthly life to matter and for him to enter into his glory, he first has to die. He has to give himself away. And this is what the haves, right, the, the havers don't understand. Because to look at Jesus from the outside is to say, what a wasted life. So much potential. 
What a good leader. What a good teacher. So much promise. Look at the crowds. Listen to their praise. Death. All that wasted on a bloody cross. The world doesn't understand the grain principle. But here's the grace in it. That the temporary loss reaps a rich harvest of eternal gain. A moment's suffering, incredibly intense, yields pleasure forever, joy forever. That's the, that's the grain principle. That when the seed is sown, it bears fruit. That was true for Jesus. And it's true for us. Our lives don't bear the same, the same fruit as Jesus' life. We're not messiahs. We're not saviors. But He's clearly putting us on a trajectory. Jim Elliott, a missionary in the late 50s, said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Think about that. I'm going to say it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's simply a variation on what Jesus is saying here. And if we really want life, We have to hate the one in this world and cling to the one in the next. But what does that mean? Right? That sounds like something that super Christians or missionaries should say. Uh, but as I pointed out last week, there's no such thing as super Christians. There's just you and me. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean if I love my life, I will lose it. And if I hate my life in this world, I will keep it. Are there... There are so many things about my life that I love, so, and that's true for you as well. So let's try to make this simple, and this may seem a little bit ridiculous, but right, my picture-perfect moment that never happens, you all have one, especially if you have small children. My picture-perfect moment that never happens is this, right? Sunrise, hot cup of coffee, and a really good book, okay? I like reading, I love reading a lot, okay? I love reading. I can, I can own that. You can look at me and tell that I love reading, okay? Now imagine, imagine that I ordered my life around reading. Everything I do is to gain reading. I would lose my wife and my children because I would neglect them. They would get in the way of my reading, uh, I would never go outside because now I can order books via the Internet and never have to set foot outside my door so I can keep reading. I would never leave my house. And eventually I would have to be hospitalized because the only things I could talk to would be books, right? I would no longer function, no longer be able to interact with people because I want to interact with books. The saddest moment would come when I lose my sight and I can no longer read. And then I would probably die very soon after that 
Because the very thing that I live my life for, I can no longer have. So you see that that's the having life. Right? That's, the, that's the life centered around having. That the very thing we live our lives for, in the end, slips through our fingers like grains of sand. We have, and we have, and we have. And then there's nothing left to have, and life is a loss. Now that example is a little silly, maybe over the top. But you know people that do that. You're looking at one. Right? That what Jesus, when Jesus says, you must hate your life in this world and you will keep it for eternal life, he's not saying life is bad. He's saying your life in order to, to matter has to be centered on the right thing. And that only thing is Jesus. Otherwise, we lose everything. But if we have Jesus, we gain it all. Again, that's the grace in the grain principle that Jesus calls us to give. He calls us to give ourselves away, and that's risky. It's very risky to give our relationships away in evangelism, to give our time away in serving to give our gifts and our money away in mercy and stewardship. To give on the level that Jesus is calling us to is very risky. But it means eternal reward. Our giving is not the same as Jesus' giving, but Jesus is setting us on the same trajectory of momentary loss for unimaginable gain. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. I cannot keep my life. I cannot keep my money. I cannot keep my children. I cannot keep my wife. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So how does that apply then to stewardship and giving? Our value mentions four different ways we would apply this but I want to focus on that last one, on stewardship. And the reason I want to do that, there's a couple. One is because we never actually talk about it much here. And I realize that there's a lot of guilt behind this, that there's a, probably a lot of scar tissue built up, especially if you've come from a church tradition where you feel like the church always talked about giving away, giving, giving you money or take, taking your money or whatever. And I realize that this, this is so abused. And I think that's maybe forced us to be in fear of actually saying anything about it. But given the amount of time that Jesus spends talking about it, and Paul spends talking about it, and James spends talking about it, we should talk about it. And I think the most important reason for talking about grace, the gospel, and giving is this, that if we, if we learn how to apply the gospel here to our wealth, then everything else will be easy to give away. Mercy, serving, evangelism, I think those come easier when the heart is free in regards to wealth. Why? Because wealth is our heaviest idol. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, 
You can't serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You cannot serve God and material possessions. Now, of all of the things he could have mentioned, pride, lust, he mentions wealth. Because of all of the sins that grip our heart so easily, all of, of all of the things that can take Jesus' place, Jesus saw it as wealth. That's the one that, that hinders us so much. Why? Well, it's where I get my comfort from. My security from. If I have wealth I'm taken care of, it's where I get my sense of control from. And when I have comfort, security, and control, I no longer need to follow Jesus. Now, wealth is not bad. God created wealth and it is good. So don't, again, don't leave saying you're guilty of being rich. That's not true. The problem is how wealth gets used and what place it takes in our heart. And that can be a problem whether, you're, whether you receive disability checks or whether you make six figures a year. Wealth can, wealth can be an idol to you and then to me. Okay? So what is, what is the solution? What does Jesus tell us? How do we learn to give ourselves away? Well, in Matthew 6, back in the Sermon on the Mount, we've heard a sermon in this area, right? He gives us an investment analogy. And if you haven't read uh, Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle, we have some in the bookstore. I highly recommend it. Uh, the language I'm using right now, I borrow from Alcorn. But Jesus talks about investment. Matthew 6:19, he says, Don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right, so imagine then it's, it's two investments, okay? On the one hand, Jesus is, and this is the best investment advice you'll ever get. It's rock solid, guaranteed. Jesus says, if you invest in this world, you will, your money will be taken or destroyed. It's a total loss. Even if you manage to keep it all until the day that you die, at that point you lose control of it and it goes to someone else. Investment in this world is a total loss. On the other hand, if you invest in the kingdom, if you invest in heaven, it's a 100% gain. And the dividends keep building and building and building, and you will enjoy those benefits forever. So the way that the way that wealth, the way that we apply the gospel to our wealth, as we say, as Paul told the Corinthians in Second Corinthians eight nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, who for your who though he was rich, for your sakes became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul's motivating them to give. For the, for the needs of other saints or other churches. And, and he says this, You are rich beyond imagination. Because of God's grace to you in Jesus, you have all that you need in Him. And as a result, you can freely give. We can give to heaven. 
Right? We can invest in heaven because we realize that Jesus has given for us. How do we do that? We put our money in our lives where we believe Jesus is at work. I think most of you, because you're here, believe that Jesus is at work here. And so, um, a couple of suggestions, and this straight from Alcorn and some others. If you're not tithing, if you are not giving, or let's put it this way, if you're not giving at all, begin with the tithe. And some will argue that, well, the New Testament doesn't command a tithe. Fair enough. The New Testament's example is actually lavish generosity. It goes beyond the tithe. So, at least in Scripture, we see that the tithe is a good minimum, a good place to start. Ten percent. Okay? Uh, And for most of us, if not all of us, that's a fairly easy sacrifice to make. Ten percent of your income. Once the tithe is set as a baseline, consider giving more. Consider going beyond. Again, the New Testament example doesn't stop at the tithe. It it carries on into greater generosity. Those are just some some suggestions. Um, And we'd love to to talk with you more about it. But that's, again, I think if if we realize that there is joy to be had in giving, we would give more freely. God loves a cheerful giver, as Paul says again in 2 Corinthians. All right, so all of that to say, let me close with this. We want to be a dying church. You say, Kevin, we were dying 15 years ago. We don't want to, we don't want to be there again. What I mean is this. We want to be a, a community of people so enthralled with the grace of Jesus that we want to die in the way Jesus is talking about. We want to die to ourselves in generous and lavish giving. Giving of ourselves, giving of our, of our wealth, giving of our relationships, giving of our time. We want to give ourselves away. And that actually brings us back to the first value. Worship. That when we do this, it is an act of worship to the God who has saved us and redeemed us. A grace-centered life is an unstoppably generous life. By God's grace, may it be true of us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus, for a hard message and a hard word, but for one we, we need to hear. Lord, would you set our hearts free to follow the call of Jesus? That as the grain of wheat falls into the ground and bears rich fruit, as Jesus' life has done that, Father, by your grace, would you help our lives to do that as well. May we long for the joy that comes with heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.